0: Had you ever heard of uh, of Christopher Wilder before?
1: I know that I've uh, I know that I've seen uh, his cases at least in passing. I have not ever looked into him myself.
0: He had a pretty uh, narrow window of time for like what he's known for. I, I guess somewhere along the way uh, some of the media gave him the name, the beauty queen killer. Yeah. Um, he's, he's fascinating to me because he's a serial killer from another country operating in the U S and anytime those cases happen, I always wonder like, you know, what was really going on there and like, how, how much, uh, are we missing from their stories? So, so this guy was born in 1945, uh, But the time frame that we're focusing on is the early 80s. He was born in Sydney in New South Wales, Australia. So his dad was American. He was a a naval officer. And his mom was Australian. Supposedly, from what I've read, he nearly died at birth because there was some kind of issue giving birth to him. And then he almost drowned in a swimming pool when he was two years old. His crime spree actually starts 20 years ahead of where we are. Uh, In 1963, on January the 4th, when he was 17 years old, he raped a 13-year-old girl while he was with two other young men. And the two other young men said they had nothing to do with what was going on. He ends up getting sentenced to probation. Um and there are claims that he got some electroshock therapy, although there, it's self-reported. So I'm not hundred percent sure uh, it would have been common during that time frame. but I don't have any verification of whether or not he actually got electroshock therapy because that's, that's sort of a big uh, no, no, it's a, a very medieval approach to mental health, but it was suggested that the therapy potentially could, uh, Caused further issues with his brain and what was going on in there, and may have exacerbated or aggravated his violent sexual tendencies. If you're 17 and you're raping a 13 year old, I don't think that you're in the best frame of mind to begin with. Uh, in fact, uh, Duncan McNabb went along with me. There's an article. Uh, and, uh, he's a he's a journalist, and he wrote a, a story called "The Snapshot Killer" in 2019 where he claimed he couldn't find any evidence that Wilder had ever undergone electroshock therapy. Um, And he also said that the almost drowning at the age of two may have been made up by Wilder as well. In 1968, Wilder got married, but after a week's marriage, his wife left him. So she didn't want to deal with whatever he had going on. In 1969, he immigrated to the United States and he lived in Boynton Beach, Florida in an upscale home. He was successful there in real estate and uh, he started to develop an interest in another uh, uh, one of these guys who developed an interest in photography from 1971 to 1975. He ends up facing multiple charges for different types of uh, sexual misconduct. Now he's covered by Kathleen Ramlin who does quite a bit of true crime writing. And back in April, 2012, she did a pretty good timeline on Mr. Wilder. He lures a young woman into his truck on the pretense of uh, photographing her for a modeling contract. And he rapes her. So this later on during his spree, this is uh, identified as, as what's considered to be his MO as he's, He's basically saying to these girls, you're very pretty. I think you'd make a great model. Listen to my accent. I'd like to uh, take some pictures and help you. And uh, despite multiple convictions of different types of sexual misconduct and assault, Wilder never goes to jail for these early offenses. So he goes to visit his parents in Australia in 1982. And he ends up charged with sexual offenses there related to two 15-year-old girls who he had forced to pose nude while he photographed him. His parents end up posting his bail, and he is allowed to return to Florida based on uh, the, the bail posting uh, to await trial. So there's multiple delays in his, uh, his court case from 1982, and the initial hearing uh, that is that happens for that case Uh, He he never appears because he's been in the United States and he ends up dying before that case ever uh, gets the court. So in early 1984, Wilder goes on what's described as a six week rampage in the United States. That they know of, he left eight murder victims in his wake. Um, The. First, wait, hold on. Before I get into the murder part. So before we go into these murders, what do you think of the whole idea of electroshock therapy? I don't think we've ever talked about that.
1: I don't know much about it. Um, I don't really have an opinion one way or the other. Because um, I, I I don't know how real it is. Um,
0: as far I mean, as whether it helps or anything? or
1: Well, I just... I just don't know enough about it to really have formed an opinion. I do feel like it, uh, when I think of it, it's like a sort of barbaric thing. It makes me think that like, it's, it could be exaggerated as a treatment because you know, it's really easy to blame like bad behavior on things like doctors electroshocking your brain. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah. that That's sort of, that's sort of how I feel about it. Like. So it's interesting when it's positioned by someone who's clearly engaging in criminal behavior by their own admission, and then using that as sort of the pretense as an excuse.
2: Part of
1: this whole story, and maybe, uh, you know, maybe it'll come to light and I'll understand, but it seems like he went on this spree and then he died before he was, uh, you know, He died while he was being taken into custody, right? Yeah. Okay. And so, like, I immediately wonder, like, what is the context of the narrative here? How reliable is it? I'm not saying it's not reliable, but that's just based on all the research I've done. That's what comes to mind immediately, is like, are we sure about that?
0: <laughs> well, uh, you're not the only one to question that. There, there is some good coverage about Chris Wilder out there, and I'll just go ahead and tell everybody: it's in writing. Like, there's there's video stuff, but the better coverage, like, you have to read. You have to read some books, and you have to read uh, some some long form articles to, to really get into why this guy is uh, he's he's a lot of question marks. What what I found interesting about him was the fact that. He uh, that, that he gets himself killed while he's being apprehended.
1: Well, um, yeah, well, that doesn't surprise me in the least.
0: Well, so the first murder that, like, is actually attributed to him is a woman named Rosario Gonzalez. So she's last seen on February 26, 1984, at the Miami Grand Prix. Have you ever been to one of these races? Like a Grand Prix or a Le Mans or any of those? I
1: have been to... I've been to car races, but I don't know that it's the same thing.
0: This is so the Miami Grand Prix and that series of of races, it's a little bit uh like going to the Kentucky Derby, or it was at the time we're talking about. So it's sort of a big to-do. Um and they have a lot of products that are being advertising there. And they have women that they employ as presentational spokesmodels. So that's what Rosario Gonzalez was doing. She was there as a spokesmodel. Wilder was actually at the race, racing in the IMSA GTU class. He had a Porsche 911 that he was racing. Rosario Gonzalez goes missing from this race. That's on February 26th. And then on March the 5th, Uh, Elizabeth Kenyon also goes missing now she is Wilder's former girlfriend and I think that's one of the things that differentiates Wilder from most of the other killers is that this is someone who is affiliated with him now one of the interesting things about Elizabeth Kenyon was she was a finalist for the title of Miss Florida Uh, That was kind of a big deal. Now, Rosario Gonzalez and Elizabeth Kenyon, their remains have never been found. On March the 18th, Wilder approaches a girl named Teresa Ferguson, and he leads her away from the Merritt Square Mall, um, which is in Merritt Island, Florida. Ferguson is 21 years old. Wilder murders Ferguson, and he dumps her body into Canaveral Groves. And it won't be found until five days later on March the 23rd. And that's a rural part of Brevard County down there. So that's the community that would be like Palm Bay, Melbourne, Titusville, Florida. It does not have, it's more rural than uh, most of the other places that we're talking about down there. His next victim is a 19-year-old girl named Linda Grover that he abducts from the Governor's Square Mall in Tallahassee, Florida. Now, Linda Grover is a Florida State University student. He takes her to Bainbridge, Georgia on March the 20th. She had declined his initial offer to photograph her for a modeling agency, after which uh, he assaults her in the mall parking lot. He ties her hands. He wraps her in a blanket. He puts her in the trunk of his car. Uh, then he, uh, at first he takes her to the Glen Oaks motel and he rapes her. He used a super glue blow dryer combination to blind her. And he applied copper wires to her feet to pass an electrical current through them. When she tries to get away from him, he beats her and she finally escapes Uh, She locks herself in the bathroom and she began pounding on the walls trying to get the the neighboring motel room's uh, occupants' attention. And at that point in time, Wilder flees in his car and he takes all of Linda Grover's belongings with him. That's another rare occurrence when someone survives.
1: No, I agree. (laughs) Definitely.
0: So on March the 21st, So basically, the next day, Wilder approaches a 23-year-old wife, mother, and nursing student at Lamar University in Beaumont, Texas, about posing as a model. This is Terry Walden. She turns him down, but she ran across him again a couple days later on March the 23rd, and then he kidnapped her. So, with her, Wilder stabs her to death, and he dumps her body in a canal, and she's found on March the 26th. So, after killing Walden, Wilder steals her car. She has a 1981 Mercury Cougar, and he drives away, he f- or I guess flees. On March the 25th, he goes to the Penn Square Mall in Oklahoma City. And he abducts Suzanne Logan. Then he drives 180 miles north to Newton, Kansas. And he checks into the I-35 motel. After breakfast the next morning, he drives to the Milford Reservoir, which is 90 miles northeast of Newton, Kansas. Uh, It's right outside of Junction City, Kansas. And he stabs Suzanne to death. And he dumps her body under a cedar tree there. His next stop is in Grand Junction, Colorado. There, he takes 18-year-old Cheryl Bonaventura captive on March the 29th. They were seen together at a diner in Silverton. And she told the staff that they were heading for Las Vegas and that they were going to stop in Durango, Colorado on the way. On March the 30th, they're seen at the Four Corners Monument. So the Four Corners Monument is a it's a quadra point in the southwestern U.S. where Arizona, Colorado, New Mexico and Utah all meet. After this, Wilder checks into the Page Boy Motel in Page, Arizona. After they check in and they check back out, Wilder shot and stabbed Bonaventura to death around March the 31st near the Kanab River in Utah. But her body's not found till over a month later on May the 3rd. So then Wilder kills 17 year old Michelle Korfman, who was an aspiring model. She was at a 17 magazine cover model competition at the Meadows Mall in Las Vegas on April the 1st when she disappeared. Someone had taken a photograph at the competition, which shows Wilder stalking her at the competition. Her body remained undiscovered near a Southern California roadside rest stop until May the 11th. So she's not found till days later. She was not identified until mid-June by dental x-rays or or a a dental comparison uh, because of the decomposition. And then on April the 4th, near Torrance, California, Wilder photographs 16-year-old Tina Marie Ricicco before abducting her and driving her to El Centro. There he assaults her. He apparently believed that Ricicco would be abused in helping him to get other victims. His idea was, I can use this young girl to, uh, to attract other young girls. So he kept her alive and he took her with him and he goes traveling. They go back through... Prescott, Arizona, Joplin, Missouri, and Chicago, Illinois. So starting in the second week of April of 1984, Wilder goes on the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives list. On April the 10th, uh, he takes Tina Marie to Maryville, Indiana. She helps him to abduct 16-year-old Donette Wilt from the Southlake Mall. So Wilder then rapes Wilt several times while Tina Marie is driving them to New York. So then they get to uh, Pinyon, which is in Yates County, New York. It's this little tiny village of like the modern population is probably about 7,000 people. He took Wilt into the woods and he tried to suffocate her or strangle her, but he ends up stabbing her twice and leaving her. Wilt manages to tie a pair of jeans around the wounds and she flags down help. So she gets taken to uh, soldiers and sailors hospital in Pinyon uh, by a truck driver named Charlie Larson. Wilder had a gut feeling that, that something hadn't gone right. So he doubles back and he returns to where he'd left her to make sure that she was dead. And he sees that she's gone. So he panics. Uh, Wilt survives and uh, she ends up recuperating at a local hospital due to the efforts of a, a doctor there named John Flynn. She told police that Wilder was going to be headed for Canada, but at the Eastview mall in Victor, New York, Wilder forced 33 year old Beth Dodge into his car. And he had Tina Marie follow him in Beth's Pontiac Firebird. After a short drive, Wilder ends up shooting Beth. He dumps her body in a gravel pit, and then he and Tina Marie drive the Pontiac over to Logan Airport in Boston, and he buys a ticket to go to Los Angeles. Then he heads north, and in Beverly, Massachusetts, he attempts to abduct a woman at gunpoint, but she gets away from him. On April the 13th, Wilder stopped at Vix Getty Service Station in Colbrook, New Hampshire, and he asked for directions to Canada. Two New Hampshire state troopers, they approach him. He retreats to his car to get out a, a three fifty seven Magnum Colt Python that he has there. But one of the troopers is able to grab Wilder from behind, and in the scuffle, two shots are fired. The first bullet hit Wilder and exited through his back and hits the other trooper. The second bullet hit Wilder in the chest, and Wilder died. Uh, The trooper was seriously wounded, but he recovers and eventually returns to full duty. Wilder is no more, and his story doesn't really die with him, but it becomes the source of a lot of speculation. Um, They found a a copy of a book on him. It's a book by John Fowles called The Collector. In that book, uh, a man keeps a woman in his cellar against her will until she dies, uh, among other odd possessions. So Wilder ends up cremated in Florida, and he leaves a personal estate behind uh, that's worth more than $7 million. And in June of 1986, an arbitrator rules that the after-tax balance uh, is going to be divided among the uh, the families of his victims, even though he's never convicted of, of anything related to this spree. What do you think? All that murder crammed into just a few weeks.
1: It's insane. That guy had just lost his mind.
0: Yeah, that's it, it, it's a it's one of those cases where it happens so quick.
1: Well, and the survivor knew he was going or thought he was going to Canada. So he sounds like a talker as well. So I'm I, as we went through it, I was sort of figuring that the reason they have all this information is because he was uh, telling, especially the the girl that he kept alive because she helped him out. Uh, I believe her name was uh, Tina, Tina Marie. Tina Marie. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: and so uh, it's it's a little bit insane. So let's see. It's his span of murders was what six weeks
0: basically february through april is the confirmed time frame we were dealing with there and so it's at the end of february and it ends with his death
1: okay and so he was out on bail uh or on bond from australia where he was suspected of uh
0: so he was charged with uh sexual offenses against two 15 year old girls that he had forced to pose nude. And then his parents posted the bail there and he's allowed to come back over here. Um, that case never got heard because by the time it was heard in April, 1984, he was dead.
1: Okay. So he comes back to the United States where he lives. And I, you know, it is possible that he thought, well, you know, I'm going to be going to prison in Australia anyway, so let me make, uh, you know, my last hurrah here. It sounds uh really, really, really sporadic to me.
0: Yeah, it is. It's definitely more spree-oriented.
1: That's what it seems. Like, it seems like he just, I mean, you just really were fortunate not to cross his path. That's yeah. what it, I mean, because it doesn't seem like it seems like any random person he or random woman he came upon could have ended up being one of his victims.
0: Yeah. So what they end up doing with him is they dump a bunch of bodies sort of in his timeline that the way it, it gets written up. OK, so we have eight known victims, but. The, the general gist of what he was doing, it wasn't like Otis Toole or, or Henry Lee Lucas. It was a pretty com, confined time frame. And they had this like sporadic, as you eloquently describe it, uh, geographical road trip that he's on. They do dump into uh, his, his story quite a few people. Um, And I'm going to bring some of them up here. So Wilder's the primary suspect in the disappearance of 15-year-old Colleen Orsborn. I think we've talked about her before. Um, You and I, I don't know that it's been on the show. She went missing after leaving her Daytona beach home on March the 15th, 1984. Wilder was confirmed to be staying at a motel in Daytona beach on that same date. He checked out on the day that Orsborn disappeared And no evidence has been found to connect him. Her body was discovered a few weeks later. It was partially buried near a lake in Orange County, Florida. Uh, Initially, though, it's ruled not to be her. And that ends up delaying the formal identification until 2011. So it takes them 30 years to identify her body. He's a suspect in a series of murders in Australia called the Wanda Beach murders. And that those are the murders of Marianne Schiff and Christine Chirac at Wanda Beach near Sydney. This is uh, on January 11th, 1965. That's because he looks like uh, a witness's, a witness-acquired suspect sketch is what I, I, I guess you would call, uh, where they do a, a composite. So in those murders... Here's how that goes. Marion Smith arrived in Melbourne, Victoria with her family in uh, September of 1958. At that time, the Smith family consisted of her parents, who were Helmut and Elizabeth, and her siblings, Helmut Jr., Hans, Peter, Trixia, and Wolfgang. There was another child that gets born into the family. The youngest at that time is Norbert. So once they've arrived in Australia, the Smith family lived in a, a hostel in New South Wales. And they finally settle in Tamora. And in 1963, Helmut moves the family to Sydney after finding out that he has been, or he's diagnosed uh, with Hodgkin's disease. The family found a home in West Ride. and in June the following year, so 1964, Helmut dies. Uh, Marianne Schmidt, her next door neighbor, is a girl named Christine Chirac. And Christine Chirac was living there with her grandparents, Jim and Jeanette Tagg. Chirac's father had died in 1953, and her mother had remarried and was living in uh, this area known as Seven Hills. It's a a suburb of Sydney, Australia. Chirac moved in with her grandparents by her her own choice, her own choosing. And when the Smiths arrived next door, she ends up developing a very strong friendship with Marriott. They're the same age. It doesn't mention in here why she wants to live with her grandparents instead of her mom and stepdad, but but she does continue to live there. And on the 1st of January, 1965, Shirak and Schmidt visited the beach at Cranula. This is a popular picnic spot for the Schmidt family. Um, there were diary, entry, diary entries, uh, which ended up being read after the murders, that indicated that the boy, the girls had kissed some boys at the beach. So the next day, the Smith children visited uh, the Cronulla Beach again without Chirac. Mrs. Smith had been admitted to hospital for an operation. It was a pretty uh, major emergency surgery. And she left Helmut Jr. and Marianne in charge of the house. On Saturday, the 9th of January, Marianne and Christine asked Mrs. Smith, who who's still in the hospital, if they could take the kids to Cronulla the next day. And she said, yes. However, it rained, so they couldn't do it. But on Monday the 11th, uh, the girls set off by train to the railway station. They transfer. They've got the four youngest kids in tow. They arrive about 11 a.m., but it was very windy, so the beach had been closed. So the group walked to the southern end of the beach, and they sort of just hung out on these really pretty sort of oceanscape areas where there's a lot of rocks. Wolfgang still wanted to get in the water, so Marianne went with him to a shallow part of the surf that was away from the rocks, and they returned to the group and they they all had a picnic out there, and they all had lunch together at some point during this time. Christine leaves the others and she goes off by herself when she returns for some reason, they decided to go for a walk into the sand hills that are behind. Wanda Beach. So these are like like dune areas, but they go on for for quite a uh, large geographical area away from the beach. And around one p.m., the group had reached a point where they're beyond uh, this this little establishment known as the Wanda Surf Club, and they stopped to take shelter beside, behind a sand hill because it was so windy that the younger kids were complaining about it being sort of cold and wet. Marion told her younger siblings that she and Christine would return to the rocky area at the South end of the beach. And they, they they're going to go and get their bags that they've sort of hidden away from view. They're going to come back and get the kids and they're all going to go home. However, they continued on into the sand hills area. When they're told by Peter that they're headed the wrong direction, they laughed at him and kept walking. But the Smith children, the younger children, they waited behind the sand hills until 5 p.m., at which time they returned to collect their bags, which included Marianne and Christine's purses. And they got their shit together and all these kids went home on the last train. They get home around 8 p.m. And Marianne and Christine are reported missing around 8.30 by Christine's grandma that she lives with. The next morning, on Tuesday the 12th, Peter Smith takes his three youngest nephews for a walk along the sand hills, some distance north of the same place they had been at behind the Wanda Surf Club. He discovered what appeared to be or what looked like a store mannequin that was face down in the sand. He brushes away uh, the sand from the head and he realizes it's a human body. So the police get called to the surf club. And at this point, Peter tells them that they found a young woman. But when the scene is examined, Marianne is found lying on her right side with her left leg bent. So it's not a mannequin. It's Marianne Schmidt. And then they discover that Christine Chirac is also there. She's face down with her head against the sole of Schmidt's left foot. So they're both sort of buried here. They both have scratch marks on their face. And there's a drag mark that leads away from the scene. So police determine that Christine had run away probably while Marianne was dying, but then she was caught and dragged back to the body of her friend. And she was also killed. They go looking for murder weapons, either some type of blunt instrument. And they believe that one of them is some type of blunt instrument and they're looking for a long knife, but they're never found. Sand around the murder scene is sifted out and and various items are found and they finally do come up with a knife blade, but it's much later. The autopsy for Christine found that she had a blood alcohol of 0.015, but Marianne did not have any alcohol in her system. It was also discovered that Christine had consumed food, um, probably a, a Chico roll they found cabbage and celery in her system, and it was different from the rest of the party, so they believed that she had gotten the food while she was alone and away from them. Christine's skull had been fractured by a blow to the back of the head, and she had been stabbed 14 times. Marianne's throat had been slashed, and she had been stabbed six times. Uh, Their underwear had been cut, and there there had definitely been attempts to rape both girls, There were semen found on both of the girls, but at autopsy, their hymens were shown to be intact. Darian's brother, Hans, viewed photos of the body, and his uh, quote about this is she had been stabbed 25 to 30 times, and she was almost decapitated by how vicious it was. It was also during uh, Christine's being away from the group that Wolfgang the youngest had noticed a teenage boy who was hunting crabs later. He claimed that he saw the same boy two more times. And one time was in the company of Marianne and Christine. And then he saw him walking alone later when all of the kids were hiding and waiting for the girls to come back. They were trying to get out of the sand in the wind. There was some doubt about whether his description was accurate because he said over time, uh, some things had changed in one instance, he said, The guy had a homemade spear gun. In another instance, he said that he had a fishing knife. And in another police interview, he said they had both. He said that the the person he saw had both. The last official sighting of Christine and Marianne is considered to be at 1245 by a local fireman there named Dennis Dosting. He was walking in the area with his son, and they saw the girls ahead of them by about 800 or 900 yards, and they were north of the surf club there. Dostin told police that they seemed to be in a hurry and that one of the girls was looking over their shoulder like they were being followed, but he said he didn't see anyone else. Uh, There were a number of people that he reported seeing in the area and that others reported seeing in this area who were never identified and they never came forward. So on January the 20th, the funerals were held, and there's a a $10,000 reward that's posted. It gets doubled later on. And as of August 2002, this award seemed to still be talked about some. Uh, in April of 1966, the coroner hands down a report. At this time, it's reported that the police have interviewed seven thousand people, and for that time, it would have been the largest investigation in Australian history. Despite all of this, this is a cold case. These murders are always—they're—they're they're still considered a cold case. None of the three main suspects end up fitting the description of the surfer youth. The the kid surfing has never been identified. Uh, The case has been reopened multiple times, including in 2000. And in February of 2012, the New South Wales Police Force's cold case unit announced that they had a weak sample of male DNA that that had been extracted from a pair of shorts that was worn by Christine. They admitted that current technology was unable to provide more information, but they were confident that if they held on to it, that future advances would give them more assistance. Uh, But however, in July 2014, police said that the semen sample that had been taken from Mary Ann's body had been lost and it could not be located uh, in spite of a pretty extensive search. So they have some suspects in this. They have three The first suspect was identified by a guy named Sec Johnson. Now, Sec Johnson was a detective who investigated the murders. In 1975, he was given a painting by Alan Bassett. Bassett had been jailed for murdering Carolyn Orphan, who was a 19-year-old woman, uh, on the night of June 11, 1966. She had been attacked, raped, and strangled, and then her skull had been crushed by a rock. On the night of her murder... Carolyn Orphan um, had been out on, a, on the town with her friends She had gone to the iron workers club on crown street and she had met Bassett there. So Bassett gets sent to prison for life. He serves 29 years. He ends up getting released in 1995, by the way, the painting was titled a bloody awful thing. And it was an abstract landscape Sec. Johnson, he believed that the painting showed blood trails, a broken knife blade, and the body of a victim. He was convinced that Alan Bassett was the Wanda Beach killer, and that this scene in the painting was showing something that could only have been a part of those murders. And he also believed that there were clues in the painting to two other murders that were linked to Wanda Beach. The second suspect is a guy named Derek Percy. He was in prison uh, in 1969 for the murder of a child on a beach in Victoria. Uh, and he is considered too dangerous to be released. He was not well publicized until into the 90s. But he was the prime suspect in a number of other murders of children in Melbourne and Sydney. In 2013, he passed away from cancer. And although he was considered a leading suspect for the Wanda Beach murders, um, and was linked to the location on the date of the murders. There was nothing else uh, to link him. They had hoped he would make a confession on his deathbed, but he did not. So the other suspect is who we're talking about now, and that's Christopher Wilder. So this long roundabout way of saying, this guy could have been active, that he would have been basically 20 years old. And that's what we've run into with the other suspect that is even bringing all of this stuff up um, is we're trying to figure out how long they would have been active. Now they link Wilder to a number of other cases. Uh, have, did you see this list in here? Yes. Okay. Uh, did any of these like uh, come up on our list? Uh,
1: yeah. Well, I was going to say the whole reason this guy comes up to begin with is because um uh, the parameters of the data set that we're looking at, uh, his, his February 1984 through April 13th, 1984 crime spree is like right smack dab in the middle of it. And all of yeah. his victims are, uh, they meet uh, the criteria of what we were looking for. And so uh, there's a lot of...
2: Crossover? They're,
1: they're attributing uh, basically anybody on my list uh, that I'm looking at that ran from even the early eighties, uh, up until his death, or maybe even the late seventies, um, up until when he died on April 13th, like, uh, a certain criteria they meet as a possible victim of this guy. And I, you know, I have thoughts about that, but, uh, I find it, now, I, I just want to clarify. So he was he didn't actually kill the girls in Australia that he was on bond for. He just assaulted them, right? Yeah. Okay. So uh my whole uh thing about him, you know, got out on bond and said, whatever, I'm gonna go do what I want. That probably doesn't apply. Um it this case gives a really good example of how much legislation on punishments has improved. Because, you know, earlier when you were talking about him, you he had committed quite a few offenses that he should have been in jail on. And he, for Absolutely. whatever reason, he hadn't gone to jail, right? And so uh, it, I find it hard to attribute... Uh, I, now, I haven't done a whole lot of research into this guy, but I find it really hard to attribute, um, you know, the six-week or... Uh, February to April 1984 condensed period of time with all this murder to him and then sort of pick up scragglers like outside of that time frame or even to add anybody else to that time frame right Um, so I'm not saying that he I, I feel like he probably killed uh before and just based on sort of the way he was unraveling there but I have. A, I would have to do a very thorough investigation before I um, could just, you know, put him on his pile, so to speak. And that's not to put down the victims. I'm just saying, like, I feel like it's a free-for-all, almost.
0: Yeah, it kind of gets that way. I mean, they do uh, – I will say that with this one, I think there's a lot more um, – Effort that went into linking him or not. And I'm going to, I'm going to go over a couple more of these cases. I mean, even with the Wanda beach murders, there were other murders that were possibly linked to the Wanda beach murders that um, they, they sort of give you pause. And you know, the short version of those are uh, there were two less well-known murders that occurred in early 1966 that were sort of in the shadow of what's known as the Beaumont children. I'm definitely not getting into that here. But at the time, the police, the local police had speculated there was a possibility that Wanda Beach was connected to other killers. Uh, This first one is on Saturday, the 29th of January, 1966. There was a 56-year-old cleaning woman named Wilhelmina Kruger. She gets killed in Piccadilly Center on Crown Street, which is in Wollongong. Her bloodied body was discovered around 5.45 a.m. at the foot of the basement level stairs by a butcher who had arrived for work. She had been assaulted three floors up, probably around 4.30 in the morning. And then she'd been dragged down the escalators and the stairs at this mall. She was then strangled, stabbed, mutilated, and she was found naked from the chest down. And she, they found cigarette burns in her clothing And there was blonde hair that was found at the scene. Uh, In the time prior to the murder, Kruger had been nervous that there was someone stalking or watching her. So she had started being driven to work by her partner. Um, Similarly, the lights in the car park within the Piccadilly center. So basically the parking lot lamps, they shown some signs of having been tampered with um, recently and had been tampered with again on the morning of the murder. There was a major clue that came during the investigation when a witness who lived near the mall was waiting at the gate of his property for the morning newspaper to be delivered. He reported seeing a vehicle speeding by around 4.55 a.m. on the day of the murder. So it's the right timing. The witness described the vehicle as a, a, possibly a Holden or a Chevrolet type uh, rusty cream colored utility vehicle that had a plywood canopy attached near the the rear of the vehicle. And remember, these are Australian cases, so the descriptions are slightly different than what we would do in the U.S. But the witness managed to give a description of the driver being a tall, lean male uh, who was potentially disheveled. Uh, This report was corroborated by two couples who had been visiting from Victoria who were staying at the motel at the mall. They asked a, a guy there about local accommodation shortly before Kruger's murder, and they described this guy as being the person they were talking to. The group also stated that they heard the sound of a vehicle speeding away from the mall after the murder. Their description matched multiple witness descriptions, which is 30, 5 o'clock in the morning. It's amazing they got any of this. Um, this case still remains unsolved today, and police believe that the person who did this might have also been the work of the Wanda Beach killer, but they have never revealed uh, even at the federal level why they think that. So, it's sort of left for us to wonder. Then around midnight on Wednesday, the 16th of 1966, uh, there was a shop assistant from Bondi named uh, Anna Dalinkoa. Uh, She was also rumored to have worked as a sex worker, and she went missing after leaving the taxi club in King's Cross. Ten days later, around 5.30 p.m. on uh, the 26th of February, Her body was found semi-naked, strangled, stabbed, and mutilated by a truck driver who had stopped at the side of Old Ilawarra Road in uh, Manai to change a tire. Most of her clothes and belongings were missing, and there was drag evidence that showed that her body had been moved to a more visible location three to four days prior to her discovery. So basically, the body had been dumped, and then they decided they want the body to be found, so they pulled her back up. Uh, They called this one a Jack the Ripper-like murder, and they link it to Kruger... Wilhelmina Kruger um, at the Piccadilly Center. And they call investigators from both of these locations in to get together and kind of task force this. They believe that uh, not only might they be related, but they believe that it might be related to the one beach Killer. So you've got these three murders or one is a double murder um, in 1965, 1966. They think they're all linked together. Uh, and they believe the killer was like, taunting them. Uh, in the Kruger murder, there was a witness who called himself Gary that gave a statement that he and a girlfriend were sitting in the uh, car parked at Railway Square, which is behind the mall, and that they could see the utility vehicle pulling into the square between 2.30 and 3 in the morning. Gary also stated that the vehicle circled Railway Square three times before turning back on the Gladstone Avenue and parking across from the mall. Police checks revealed that whoever the person was that left that witness statement, uh, his name and his address were false. They wondered if it might have been the killer. So that takes us back to, you know, Christopher Wilder possibly being related to that. And in the U.S., there was no shortage of people that they sort of dump on him. First of all, they link him uh, as a suspect to the unsolved disappearance of Mary Opitz. Mary Opitz disappeared in Fort Myers, Florida on January the 16th, 1981. She was last seen walking to a parking lot. Uh, there was another girl who physically resembled Opitz named Mary Hare, and she had disappeared on February 11, 1981, in the same parking lot. Hare's body gets found in June of 1981. So months later, uh, she'd been stabbed in the back and she was a victim of homicide for sure. Authorities began to suspect that foul play was uh, also involved in Opitz's case, but as of December 2020, Opitz's case remains unsolved. And I couldn't even find, so I couldn't, I couldn't find a lot about Opitz's case. But uh, she ends up, you put her on our list, so she fit the parameters for what we were looking for elsewhere, uh, at least geographically and possibly time. It's a little early in the timeline, but. I, I still think we have to look at it
1: for our param- for yeah for our parameters now uh it has come up that you know we're talking about her here because she is thought to be a possible victim of Christopher Wilder and
0: that ultimately like, may end up ruling her out for us that alone
1: that's true but under the circumstances, which we're not doing, Christopher Wilder—he uh, right. just came up in the passing of you know the situation of the data we have. But to me, I don't even see why uh, she's been thrown into this particular pile.
0: Oh, you don't see why she's on the list of Wilder? I think it's just a matter of time and place. I have not. Uh...
1: But time-wise, we're talking about two years earlier. Correct. Right. And so Christopher Wilder had this spree that occurred, right?
0: Oh, yeah. It's absolutely a good example of like, oh, there's a serial killer. Let's see what we can dump him on. It gets weirder. Uh,
1: Oh, I know it does. Yeah, I know. I know. In 1979,
0: there was a body of an an unidentified woman who had been found in a field in Caldonia, New York. She was a victim of a homicide. She'd been shot twice, once in the front of the head and once in her back. Despite the fact that she was found quickly, she remained a Jane Doe until 2015. In 2015, she was identified as 16-year-old Tammy Alexander, who had disappeared from Brooksville, Florida, in 1979. So what could link Alexander to Wilder is the fact that she was found wearing an auto sports jacket when her body was discovered. So Wilder was a race car driver. He was also a photographer. And... Some of the drivers were known to purchase Autosports products, so the idea was somehow she's got his jacket, or it's affiliated with a place he had been. Alexander was shot and killed by a 38 caliber bullet which was recovered in the dirt under her body. This caliber ammunition can be used in a 357 caliber revolver, like the one that Wilder had on him when he got into it with the troopers who killed him. Uh, I have not seen anything that there's evidence of ballistic testing, uh, where they're trying to match these rounds. I don't know how that would work when you're going, when you're bouncing calibers like that and just happens to be the same gun. I don't know how you do that type of ballistic testing. I tried to read a little bit of it, uh, in our, our break doing a little research on this and I realized it was going to be more complicated, Um, but I am, I put that on my list to check out, but I realized like, we're not even covering Wilder. Wilder just came up in the middle of everything else.
1: Right. Yeah. (laughs) Because his victims, uh, all the victims that are purported to be his, um, in accounts by various sources, uh, that their bodies weren't recovered, they're all on our list. Um, and that's the list, not the other possible victims, but the ones that have actually been, I guess, officially attributed to him in that like their families received to the state.
0: Right. So we're, we get into the situation where we find ourselves asking a lot of questions and we have to articulate it in some way. And the way that we chosen to do that is we started with Christopher Wilder because uh, he's a spree killer. In my mind, anything that doesn't tag into that is potentially still on the table for other people, but you do have to kind of look at it and go, okay, well, these are, Murders that are considered solved when you look at the first eight. Is there any way possible they're related to something else? And you could make this like, you make yourself crazy looking at all of this pretty quickly. So in 1982, there was skeletal remains of two unidentified women unearthed near property that Wilder owned in Loxahatchee, Florida. One victim had been dead for one to three years. So they're found in 82. They're dead for one to three years. And apparently her fingers have been cut off. The idea would be to keep her from being identified. So she ends up being identified in 2013. She's Tina Marie Beebe. The other woman had been dead for a period of months. And I still cannot find whether she's been identified or not. So for right the second, the second woman is an unidentified person who's potentially a possible victim of Christopher Wilder. Never thought I'd say that sentence, like in terms of investigating something completely different. Uh, the next possible victim is Sherry Lynn Ball. She was 20 years old and she was an aspiring model. She went missing on June 27th, 1983 in Boca Raton, Florida. You want to take a wild stab at where she was found?
1: In New York.
0: Yep. She was found by a hunter in Shelby, New York, in October of 1983. Now, she doesn't get ident- identified until 2014.
1: Right, so I think it's pretty safe to say that um, Sherry Lynn Ball and Tammy Alexander probably uh, had the same killer.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, That the idea being Florida to New York was this guy's... I have no idea why he would do that, but apparently it's what he was doing. Um, right,
1: so, so I don't know that there's evidence to link this particular guy uh, to it, but those are some similarities that are hard to ignore. She's found 38 miles away from Tammy Alexander, so
0: yeah, the, her cause of death was listed as undetermined. Um, it they are treating it still like a homicide investigation. And they've looked at Wilder. I think the idea was his modus operandi would match. And then this, what I think they were picturing was, hey, come with me, I'll take you to New York and I'll make you a model or an actress or whatever. Um, but yeah, she's 38 miles away from where Tammy Alexander was found. So I doubt that she's going to be, I don't, I don't know. I mean, that's a, that's a long ride right there. Um, and I, I think you've made that before or at least made the two rides that that would take. Um, but Florida and New York's not a joke. I don't know how you get somebody that far away or why you would dump their body
1: there. I was wondering if it was a more... Like, I know with one of... Uh, she didn't end up being his victim. I think she was going to be his victim, but she, he instead he used her to recruit other victims with uh, Tina Marie.
0: Yeah, with Tina Marie, the 16-year-old.
1: So I was wondering, like, maybe... Like you said, uh, it would have had to have been a situation where they were willingly with him up to a point.
0: Well, we've, there's some information in terms of interviews with Tina Marie that we can get into um, as we go on. Wilder comes up again, sort of as we're ruling people out, because authorities have been trying to rule people out. Uh, he has a couple of victims left here. And I don't know how, like, this one's actually related to him. It's I talked about it earlier on. This is Elizabeth Ann Kenyon. She was 23 she had dated Wilder. Wilder had proposed to her, but because of the difference in their ages, she declined. She is believed to have last been seen at a gas station near Miami with him. That, that's believed to be her of last contact or last, last time people had proof of life of her. Her car was found six days later. It was abandoned at the Miami airport and her body has not been recovered. If, the, if it's all tracking, I guess her body would be in New York or California or something. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Like, I don't think they're going to find her body in Florida if she's a victim of Wilder. But what are the odds of a serial killer having a girlfriend or a girl that he dated?
1: Now, you have to... Um, so, don't forget that, like, uh, the, the bodies that were from Florida, that the girls went from Florida to New York. They're, they're happening in... Um, 79 and 83 and uh elizabeth ann kenyon uh she didn't disappear until march 1984 right and so i don't know that he continued that particular tract like does that make sense
0: yeah it makes sense i mean so that sort of tracks with like the next part of this nancy k brown she went missing just before Sherry Lynn Ball did. She was a 25-year-old girl from Illinois. She was vacationing in Cocoa Beach, Florida on June 6, 1983. Her remains are found in Canaveral Groves in March of 1984, and she'd been the victim of a homicide. So it could be that like, he realized he didn't have to go through all the effort, maybe. I mean, if he had a $7 million estate when he died in 1984, that's a, that's a significant amount of money, if that's, like, He's basically a a millionaire serial killer.
1: Oh well, yeah, I mean, I I'm not sure what the ver- well and okay, so just like that could it could just to me the fact that the girl the two girls from Florida end up in New York that could just as easily uh, knock him out as not being their killer, um, but it is the same killer, I think.
0: Yeah, I. I I have questions about it. I've never, like, come, like, to the end of that. But, you know, Tammy Lynn Leppard is next on my list. And I I know we've talked about her case before. She was 18 years old. She was last seen around 11.30 a.m. on July 6, 1983 in Cocoa Beach, Florida, while in a heated argument with a male companion. Now, Leppard's family filed a million-dollar lawsuit against Wilder before his death, but they dropped the suit later. And Leopard's mother, who is modeling agent Linda Curtis, she later stated she never believed Wilder was involved in Tammy's disappearance. And police were never able to link Wilder and Leopard. So it could be a coincidence that she disappeared the same time he was targeting area models. But then we have these other guys that are also targeting models. You know, he had this history of sex crimes that we've sort of gone over here. Uh, but. Then he has this spree where he's basically being accused of all these murders, and some of them have to be legit because you've got Tina Marie in the middle of that. So the last person that's listed on the possible victims is an unidentified young woman known as Broward County Jane Doe. She was found uh, floating in a canal on February eighteenth of nineteen eighty four in Davie, Florida. She'd been strangled to death. And it was thought that she had been dead two days prior to having been found. So Broward County Jane Doe, I don't know if she's going to have anything to do. She's
1: actually probably the best candidate based on like what was happening there as far as him being so spastic. um, Okay. About filling. So you think... Uh, let's see when was the other first let's see February the 26th was uh, when they said it began and so this would put her dying about 10 days before that I I don't know enough about Wilder or this particular Jane dare to really say but I mean I could see where that would be uh, tossed on the pile definitely
0: yeah I I don't know I was okay, I have I have questions if somebody acting as sporadically as he does would sometimes dispose of bodies in New York, sometimes in Florida, and sometimes near his house. Like, I have questions about that. So
1: you got to keep in mind the time difference here. So I would look at it two different ways. I would look at it, one, as this spree that he apparently, there's enough credence to it that it's believed that he's responsible for this February to April 13th, 1984 spree, right? Yeah okay and then I would look at like the re- like for example uh, Tammy Lynn Leopard I think her case is a pretty uh, well-known case and so she went missing July 6 1983 so that we're talking about like almost a whole year before the spree right yeah okay and I would say that um, in the event that I-, I don't necessarily think that she's Christopher Wilder's victim but if you kind of follow what we were talking about through there, just sort of how I research things, you've got Sherry Lynn Ball, who disappeared June 27th, 1983. And she was eventually found in Shelby, New York, on October 29th, 1983. Yeah. Um, so with Tammy Lynn Leppert uh, disappearing on July 6th, 1983... And her body has not been recovered. It would be a pretty safe bet that, like, if Tammy Lynn Leppert showed up close to where uh, Tammy Alexander and uh, Sherry Lynn Ball were found in New York, that it, she would have been with the same uh, – had been abducted by the same killer. Because you're you're talking again about what uh, – between June 27th, 1983 and July 6, 1983, that's only – it's less than 10 days, right?
0: Yeah, but you've got, okay, but you have to deal with Sherilyn Ball. Who are you saying was the other
1: 1983? Uh, Tammy Lynn
0: Lappert. Right, yeah, yeah. No, I agree with that. But the other New York case was in 1979. Correct. That was the Tammy Alexander case. That's what I screwed up. I screwed up my Tammy's.
1: Right. And so I'm saying, like, so while they, they, they're definitely not part of the spree, right, what we have is a 1979 woman who was uh, taken out of Brooksville, Florida, a 16-year-old Tammy Alexander out of Brooksville, Florida. She disappeared um, and then was found but not identified until much, much later in uh Caledonia New York well then you've got um oh Sherry Lynn Ball she yeah so she went missing in June 27th 1983 so she's not going to have been uh connected in any way to Tammy Alexander but the way that her disappearance went down and then her body being recovered was very similar right yeah because of the whole Florida to New York thing that that's a that's a huge deal you you typically don't find this type of connection. I don't think they may not have anything to do with one another, but I I kind of doubt it now. But what I'm saying is, if Timmy, if Tammy Lynn Leopard were to be this the same person's uh, victim, her body's going to be in New York.
0: I I follow what you're saying there.
1: So he would have taken both of these girls. I mean, I don't, I don't. It's possible that he killed them and then drove up from Florida to New York. That's a little crazy, but it's possible. Um, But I'm just saying, based on the fact that they both disappeared 10 days apart, that's Hmm. what I would look for.
0: Okay, so now there's still work being done on Chris Wilder's case. I know I said, like, you can read about him. You can see some of these other things that are going on in terms of – the possible victims, but there's some good write-ups about his spree. Um, you can find several of those. If you just start Googling him, uh, the long form articles to me are a little bit better. I feel like the books drag on and on because there's a lot of speculation involved with them. But I do want to point out that there's some kind of work still going on. And here's how I know that. On May 3rd, 1973, a man discovered the body of two sisters, Mary Jenkins, who was 16 and Marguerite Maggie Jenkins, who was 18. They were in a wooded area in Key Largo, about 100 miles from where they were last seen. They had been seen the day before trying to hitchhike back to their home in New Jersey. Both girls had been sexually assaulted, as well as subjected to blunt force trauma and shot to death. There's a lot going on when you're beating someone to death and also shooting them. Authorities had looked into the possibility that Wilder was the person responsible for the murders, Because he had already been attacking women uh, during this time or assaulting women to some degree. And he had resided in Boynton Beach in 1973, which is 150 miles from Key Largo. However, Wilder ends up being ruled out when DNA recovered from a bite mark on one of the girls did not match his. So that means DNA from a 1973 bite mark on a victim of sexual assault shooting, blunt force trauma. And murder. Murder ends up not matching Wilder.
1: Right.
0: So she's ruled out. So they're, they're doing some work on this much, much later um, than Wilder's death. Now, this is the most interesting one for me. On March 7th, 1984, I believe. Yeah.
2: Yes.
0: March 7th, 1984. Melody Marie Gay, 19 years old was abducted while working the graveyard shift at an all-night store in Collier County, Florida. Her body gets pulled out of a rural canal three days later. Due to the similarities between her murder and Wilder's crimes, they were thought to be connected, but he's since been ruled out as a suspect. I look at her case, and she's really the reason that we're kind of talking about this right now. What about that stands out to you? as something uh, that might be related to what we're looking for.
1: Well, she's at an all night store and she disappeared and uh, she was 19 years old and it was time-wise it fits with what we were looking at. If uh, she hadn't been found, she'd be on our list.
0: So I'm going to go a little bit deeper with that. I'm going to agree with you. Um, The scent of Melody Gay's perfume never left her parents' home near Everglades City. That starts off a Naples Daily News article. Uh, you can find it in Naples Naples News, May twenty second, two thousand and ten. Doesn't have a byline, otherwise I would credit the author. Um, it's not just an all night store. Here's what the article says: It wasn't a sweet smell, nor was it flowery, but it was clean. To her mother, Patricia Gay, that faint but lingering scent was like an extension of melody, which remained long after she was abducted and killed in March of nineteen eighty four. I hated to leave and move someplace else because I was afraid she'd still be there. Patricia Gay was seventy-five uh, in the time of this article. She had moved to North Florida in nineteen ninety-five with her husband Daryl, who was Melody's father. Melody Marie Gay would have turned forty-six the summer of two thousand ten. She should have had a career, a family, and children of her own. But in nineteen eighty-four, Melody was a nineteen-year-old graduate with honors of Everglades City High School with Long blonde hair and an independent streak, she dreamed of going to college and working with handicapped children. Around February, Melody took a job at 7-Eleven off Collier Boulevard on the way to Marco Island. To be closer to work, she moved in with her sister at a nearby mobile home park. She had to break the apron strings and they were very tight. Melody loved to work, always had, and was enjoying her new gig. She enjoyed meeting a lot of interesting people, but didn't like working the night shift by herself. Patricia Gay said that when she eventually saw how remote the store was at the time, she begged her daughter to quit. She said, Mom, you taught us never to quit a job. You always give them notice. Marco Area 7-Eleven Store Clerk Vranishes read the headline in the March 7, 1984 edition of the Daily News. Melanie Gay disappeared from the store around 4.30 a.m., her purse still inside. No one had touched the money in the register, and there were no signs of a struggle. That weekend, a fisherman made the gruesome discovery. Melanie Gay's body was floating face down in a canal off White Boulevard. She'd been raped and strangled. Detectives received tips, followed leads, they interviewed family, friends, ex-boyfriends, acquaintances, and people known to have visited the 7-Eleven while Melody was working. But as is the case in the eyes of many families of unsolved homicide victims, it wasn't enough. Patricia Gay called the investigation worthless. If they try it hard, I don't see it. I'll put it that way, she said. Former sheriff's detective Harold Young, who headed up the unit investigating the case, said detectives did everything they could to bring justice to Melody Gay. They identified a primary suspect, but were never able to find the pieces of the puzzle that would link him to the killing. Some websites list Melody as a possible victim of Christopher Wilder, who was a serial killer who abducted, raped, and killed at least 10 women in 1984, starting in Florida. But authorities say he was eliminated as a suspect long ago. We, we checked, rechecked everything. That case stayed open. It was never closed. Sheriff's Captain Chris Roberts, who has worked in criminal investigations since 1990, said he was optimistic about making arrests in the mid-1990s when they obtained DNA in the case. However, the DNA ultimately doesn't match their persons of interest. It goes on to talk about a couple of different things that have uh, gone on down there. There's a 1970s series of homicides that uh, at some point will come up. It's not going to come up in this episode. What do you think about the fact that she was abducted from a convenience store or gas station?
1: I think that uh, we're looking. I think she has to go in the group of twenty-ish uh, year old girls that were abducted in the middle of the night from gas stations.
0: It's wild, it's a, isn't it?
1: It's an embar- I mean. It's, so you think, I don't know how everybody thinks, but what I think is that there's like this unbelievable, crazy number of uh, crimes involving, you know, women or men or whomever getting abducted from gas stations overnight and uh, murdered or disappearing and never being seen again. Uh, Melody was found, so... And when you and there may be like this unbelievable number of them. However, when you start narrowing down criteria, it is it no longer seems so impossible to figure out. And that's how I see it anyway, because to me now, like I said, she didn't come up because she is um, she was found. Uh, we were looking specifically for Or I I think it's just missing people at this point. Now, we're very early in our research. But uh, I would say that, you know, preliminarily, she's got to be included.
0: Yeah, that was one of the main things I was getting at with all my babbling in this episode. Now, what if I told you that where she went missing from and where she was found was in a national park?
1: Um, I think that it, I mean, that becomes possibly relevant. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, because I haven't made, uh, certain deductions about, um, so in that case, she then becomes a maybe in, uh, several piles, so to speak, uh, several categories, so to speak in that, you know, being found in a national park, uh, and then being taken from a gas station or disappearing from a gas station
0: I, I want to clarify this is a convenience store um I okay I've got pictures of it I see so gas, gas I see <laughs> gas pumps there now I just want to clarify that I don't know if there was there's a
1: 711 so
0: I, am assuming that, that there would have been.
1: Okay. Well, I can tell you right up front. I do understand there's a difference, but to me, convenience store and gas store coming out of my mouth is the same thing.
0: Got it. Well, we'll be back with more missing persons and unsolved murders. Thank you for joining us. We are sponsored by Labradicreations.com. You can check them out at Labradicreations.com. and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram, at True Crime XS, or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252-365-5593. You can also reach us at gmail at truecrimexs at gmail.com. And you can check out our website at www.truecrimexs.com. We'll see you next time. <laughs> I know it seems like we're coming from like sort of a random place here, but earlier in the year, we started tracking a uh, kind of a specific set of victims, but we were looking at uh, based on a sort of a conversation we were having with someone who writes a lot about true crime. We were looking at a very specific serial killer that we don't know a lot about that the world doesn't know a lot about. And for some reason a lot of the information about the serial killer has been kept secret. And when we realized that we weren't going to get anything for FOIAs and public records requests related to the serial killer, we wanted to start doing research and an investigation on our own. And what you're hearing is a preview of some of the things that we're going to be doing in season four related to this particular serial predator. Um, There is one more part. Before we uh, wrap up the year. Um, and that one will come up in the next episode, part three of Gone in the Night. <laughs>
2: Here you